1984, during my worst part of a year at WGN in Chicago, who should be at my bus stop on Halstead but Studs Terkel himself amidst a crowd of young, well-dressed, tribune-reading commodities pit entry-level types? They were, after all, still taking the CTA. Studs, in his usual vagabond casual wear with overstuffed briefcase accent, was in the midst of exhorting, in his question-and-answer style, an appalled young fellow, giving him the uh, Haymarket riot, Eugene Debs, Jane Adams, Samuel Gompers, et al., until his unwilling student was finally saved by the bus. I only mention this because in the interview that follows, Studs recounts a very nearly identical incident, attractive young woman aside, at a CTA stop, which was so uncannily similar to the one I came upon that I was either at that very same encounter, or this was the kind of thing that Studs did naturally every time he waited for a bus in the company of the upwardly mobile, seriously undereducated. I'm sure it was the latter. Studs never stopped preaching to those who enjoyed the benefits and opportunities a generation of activists and working stiffs fought for. From What Do You Know of September 9, 1995, the author of Division Street, Hard Times, Working, and the Pulitzer Prize winning The Good War, Studs Terkel. Our next guest from Chicago has written some great books over the years, and this is a great one. Studs Terkel, the latest book is called Coming of Age, the story of our century by those who've lived it. And I highly recommend it. I've gotten almost all the way through it. It's a big book, let's face it. It uh, runs up to 460-some pages. An excellent book, though. First-person narratives, as, as always, of people who really made history in our country that people should know about. And let's talk with Studs about it. He's with us in Chicago. Morning, Studs. Are you there? Yeah. I think I have a hearing problem here. My damned uh, uh, amplifier is not working. Oh, so I just will have to raise the volume a bit. Okay, raise your volume and so I'll... shout at me. And I'll raise my volume. Yeah, shout at me. How's that? Are we doing okay now? I hear you. This sounds like Chicago now. We're having a shouting match already. <laughs> I really enjoy Coming of Age, Studs. It's a great book. Well, thank you very much. The idea behind it is that there's this, this whole generation now that is in their 70s and 80s who are so instrumental in American history that nobody, nobody really knows about them. Well, that's the idea. The idea is, you know, I think we have a new kind of blacklist in the air, too. Way beyond McCarthy's in the 50s when young people listen, you heard of it rather than experienced it. And that's the ageism itself. Yeah. There's a guy, you know, a comedy writer on the West Coast, uh, retired now, but lives very well on residuals since he conceived the Sanford and Sons show and worked for Andy Griffith. Yeah. He says a friend of his who was a regular writer on the Jack Benny show told his daughter as though visiting the office of a 29-year-old executive, <laughs> don't you dare say I work for Jack Benny. He'd <laughs> be considered too old. Right, because nobody even knows Jack and Benny. so there you are. Yeah. So uh, the idea is, I'm using 70, the biblical three score and 10, as the beginning, coming of age, we think of as reaching the age of puberty. Yeah. But this is going beyond that, because they're the ones who lived through a remarkable century. That is, they lived through it, witnessed, experienced it. The Great Depression of the 30s, in which the big boys slipped on a banana peel. And we seem to have forgotten the lesson of the Depression. We call upon the same kind of guys who didn't know from noodles what it was all about, as the wise men of today. We may have another one, too, possibly. Well, there's the Great Depression, a remarkably traumatic period, followed by World War II, that changed the nature of the world and the map of it. Then came the Cold War with McCarthy and no conversation outside of babies and, and movies, you know, otherwise <laughs> it's subversive. And then came Vietnam and the Civil Rights Movement, and 
now and the computer. That's a remarkable century. Now, who are the best historians? Those who lived through it, rather than the usual stuff we get in 30-second sound bites. You know, I, I call upon them as the historian. I, I was going to say, you've written an excellent book here, but actually, you didn't write this book. No. I never read any of my books yeah. outside of the introductions. I still haven't proved I can write, <laughs> you know, because these are other people talking. There's an editing, of course, and many steps taken. How, how did you track these people down that you, that you found in the book? Well, that's just it. Uh, there's no one way. I, that's why I like jazz. I improvise a great deal. You know, I call myself a guerrilla journalist. You know, the kind of guy who's in and out of alleys and byways. I sort of know the terrain that is Chicago. That's how it starts. Mm -hmm. But then I go on. Uh, sometimes I hear by accident of someone. I got bawled out by a woman one day for talking about uh, some issue. I think involved race. And she said, oh, it's easy for you to say that. You sound just like my mother. She's saying with you. I said, what's your mother's phone number? You know? <laughs> and so I got her. And she was great, this woman. <laughs> and so that's how I work. It's a, uh, I bump into a guy on the street who bawls me out. And we start talking and this guy's good. Yeah, that, that's better than Royko's response, anyway. <laughs> well, Royko's coming back pretty good. Yeah, he is, and I, I enjoy him as well. Um, I, I love, in the introduction of the book, where you talk about running into that couple at the bus stop. Oh, could, could you tell that story? Oh, of course. Now, they're about the age, are they not, of your listeners yeah. gathered there. Mm -hmm. Now, you see, there's a cliche, a stereotype used by older people, too. They conceive all the young people as yuppies. The yuppies happen to be a minority of the young people. They're the ones, they're the louts and the quote-unquote bimbos we see on the Bud Light commercials. <laughs> you know, they're vulgar and stupid, but they have a buck or two in their pocket. So they're the ones we call the young. The great many of the young are thoughtful and lost and bewildered and scared. Many are going to say, I'm not going to be as well off as my old man, which is a reversal of the American dream. Mm -hmm. But this particular couple are definitely upscale. And I'm waiting for the bus. I've seen them for the last year or so, wait for the bus. We nod at each other. They don't encourage conversation. He's very handsome. He's got the Wall Street Journal folded neatly <laughs> under his arm. And she's very beautiful. And she's got the latest issue of Vanity Fair folded under her arm. And waiting for the bus. It's, it's, it's a couple of years ago. And it's about two days before Labor Day. So I'm saying, I like to talk to myself. You know, talk to a great appreciative audience. You know. <laughs> and so I say... Well, Labor Day is coming up, and there's this cold stare at me. <laughs> and I say, well, you know, that's when we used to march, trade unions with banners flying and rallies and, and songs. And this guy says, we loathe unions. I said, oh, boy, I got you pigeon right here. <laughs> and, and the bus is late and coming, which is in my favor. And so I say to him, I fix him with a glittering eye like the ancient mariner, you know. And I say to him, uh, well, how many hours a day do you work? He says, eight, I catch him unawares. I said, how come you don't work 18 hours a day? Your great-grandparents, you know why you work eight hours a day? Because four guys got hanged fighting for the eight-hour day. I referred to something in Chicago back in 1886 called the Haymarket Affair. Mm -hmm. Four guys, we did get hanged fighting for the eight-hour day. And he doesn't know what's going on. He's a little scared of this old nut who's talking to him. <laughs> and the girl's trembling, hold on to him. It's very beautiful, by the way. And some you you mentioned that a couple of times. Don't you? Yeah, I know that. Well, I know. <laughs> Dirty old man. And, and so I come a little closer to him now. And this time I got him pinned against the mailbox. He can't move. <laughs> you know, and and the, the bus, fortuitously, is late in coming. I must have known that bus driver. 
And, and so I say, how many hours a week do you work? He's 40. How come you don't work 80? And I tell him about the guys who got blacklisted and women did fighting for that. And finally, the bus comes and they hop in, and I never saw them again. And to this day, I have a certain feeling of remorse. This sweet young couple, all American, never did me any harm. How come I treated them that way? But then, why do I feel so good when I think about it? <laughs> <laughs> like Huck Finn on the raft. Remember, he lied to the guys chasing the slave, Jim, with him. And he said, why do I... I did a terrible thing, because trying to help him get away from people who owned him, nice, sweet people. But then why do I feel so good? Same thing here. Right. But you see, now we come to something. Why do these young feel this way? What do they know about unions? They don't read about it in the papers anywhere, except when now and then you hear maybe uh, a picket came along and it led to, you know, smack the scab or something. Yeah. They don't know about it. The papers carry what? They carry feature section, a theater section, or art section, sports section, of course, business section, you know, but this is a labor section, anything, labor, nothing. And so one of the reasons for this book is there's no past, no history. Mm -hmm. the young, uh, they do not have, for no fault of their own. And that's why I sort of tackle this. Do, doesn't every generation kind of uh, uh, forget what happened before? Is It's not unusual, is it? That may be true, but there's one big difference, and that is technology. We've taken a tremendous leap, and think of the computer and its effect on us, good and bad. And now we come to something interesting. Uh, the computer. I happen to just be learning the typewriter, you know. <laughs> I can't drive a car. I'm the kind of guy who, back in 1905, when the automobile came along, and a car would have a breakdown, I'd holler, get a horse! That was the famous phrase. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, that's why I, I'm, I'm what I call a hi-fi philistine. <laughs> I know nothing about it. However, here's the computer that does all sorts of wonders, and yet aren't we losing something? And that's the big question that differentiates this younger generation and the difference from the previous younger Aren't we losing something called the personal touch? For example, there's an older doctor in the book. He asked the young intern, How'd our patient do last night? Mrs. Smith. And the young guy punches into the computer. Out comes the latest lab test. He looks at it and says, Great, look at it. Says, no, I don't mean that. How did you, you, how did you sleep last night? Was that pain she talked about different? Well, I don't know about that. Well, that's what I mean. Mm -hmm. There's something being lost. Yeah, with that person, and that's why. And when I when I read these stories, studs, I am I'm almost embarrassed to be myself. These people went through so much. Uh, uh, for example, I was thinking of, of the woman who was involved in the the strike. Uh, oh, in Flint. one of my favorites. Yeah, she was an amazing human being. Well, I'm glad you raised that. This is a woman named Janora Johnson Dollinger. She's about 83 years old, and she's in bed. She's got third pacemaker, and she can hardly move. But as I ask her a question, oh, by the way, uh, coming to that, uh, they tend to forget. Like, I'm, I'm part of that generation. I'm 83. Uh, where did I put my uh, keys? I forgot. I wore my shoes. But you remember, and I come to this woman, she remembers certain key events in her life and on that of the country. So when I asked her, 1937, Flint, Flint, Michigan. She's a young, 83-year-old woman third pacemaker, very ill, pills all around the bedside. I said, 1937 Flint. 
Flint, that was the famous Flint sit-down strike. Now the young don't know this, but there was a sit-down strike when the United Auto Workers being organized on the NCIO back in the Depression days, 1937. They never had a union before. And they sat in the plant for 44 days and 44 nights. And she's the young girl on the top of that sound truck calling out to the women to cross the police lines because the police were throwing tear gas mm -hmm. into the plant to smoke out the guys that were sitting in. And so she calls out. And it's dramatic as she does it. Now here's this 83-year-old woman transformed into this 21-year-old firebrand. It's, it's fantastic. And at the end, she falls back on the pillow and says, for crying out loud, those are her words, for crying out this would be a better world than it is. Well, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. how, how does she, did you, I, I know you talked to her about what has happened since then and the fact that unions are in such low regard. Uh, how, how does she feel what's going on now? Does she feel like it was, it was in vain? Or? Well, uh, boy, oh boy, I wish I could. Uh, I, I, I'm generally have been for years uh, looking at the sunny side of things, pretty optimistic. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm less optimistic, but not hopeless. That's the key thing. Mm -hmm. uh, there's, a, there's a Mexican American, a Mexican woman who's a farm worker, Jessie De La Cruz, in it. She says, we, we have a phrase among us. Spanish, and I'll paraphrase it better. Esperanza, that is hope. Muera something al ultimo. Hope dies last. That's the, well, I believe that, too. Mm -hmm. There's got to be this hope. However, I'm not as optimistic as I was. Unless there's some way of getting at the truth uh, for the great many of us. Remember, fewer and fewer people can... You're one of the few guys, and you're on PBS, that public is always under attack. You and a few programs, you know, Garrison, in his own way, who can say certain things others can't. Mm. And so we have fewer and fewer controlling, more and more. We know General Electric owns NBC. You're not going to hit the Today Show exposing General Electric when there's something wrong. Right. <laughs> so that's what we're faced with. And so how are we going to get at that? So I think there have to be old-time grassroots movements, neighborhood. That's one of the themes of the book, sense of community. Yeah, and courage. It comes, I mean, uh, this is well, W.H. Ping Ferry. Now, he's the guy who took on J. Edgar Hoover. He sure did. Ping Ferry's a very funny, very witty guy. And uh, he, he worked with foundations a lot. He's the public relations guy. He was the first guy to take on John Edgar Hoover when he was considered, who was considered saintly, you know. Mm -hmm. And now we know the guy was a no-good bum. You know? <laughs> he was. By yeah. the way, I know to the kids, many of you, uh, before your time, that was when the Red Scare was on. He was the one no one ever... Presidents were scared of him because mm -hmm. he had a file on everybody. Yeah. He got a file on me. And it's the funniest one in the world. I, wish, I can't read it now, but I had an exchange of letters with him. Would you believe it? No. I almost worked for him. <laughs> During the Depression days, uh, we, we, looked at, we wanted a civil service job. That, you were the aristocrat. You had a job. Nobody was working. And I applied... You have all cuts. And I applied job fingerprint classifier at Department of Justice, which was state... Which was FBI. It would have, would have paid a municipal sum of fourteen forty a year, second lowest. And and so I didn't get the jobs. I back and forth letters go back and forth. I was sort of courting him, you know, mm. and, and uh, never made it because one of the informants in the name blacked out. I was not the highest type of boy. And I wanted to be the highest type <laughs> of boy. Highest type of boy. Yeah, ha had I made it, I might have wound up Ephraim Zimbalist Junior. <laughs> <laughs>
So your, your whole career has been revenge for not getting a job with J. Edgar Hoover, basically. <laughs> Uh, what, what did what did this what did Ping Ferry say about Hoover? That was so famous. Ping Ferry just called him. He's the first guy to ever do it. He's this guy's a, a an incompetent, inept, but also something of a bully. No one ever used those words about Saint Edgar. You know, at, at a time. Well, that takes a certain kind of guts to it. Now, it isn't a question of courage. Courage often comes from you're being part of something and not alone. I mean, it's not this uh, uh, high noon. Barry Cooper, Henry Kissinger envisions himself, you know, the Yankee cowboy. Not that. You're part of a community. And we always have the feeling that we're part of something else that takes away individuality. Well, that's bourgeois. That's baloney. The fact is, Einstein said, and I love to quote Einstein, you know why? Nobody dares contradict me. <laughs> and Einstein said, being part of a community, italicize, emphasize your individuality. Because then as you say something, others hear it, rather than being this lone voice pretending you're a hotshot. That's, that's why we have unions. One guy says, I'm anti-union. I can do it by myself. I can just imagine a guy doing it by himself. Yeah. Let, let me ask you this, Des. In, sure. in, in looking at the news today, um, do, do you get the feeling that people have the wrong enemies in their, in their, in their minds? Oh, and how, isn't it? Well, think how the race card is being played. You know, people are having a rough time and blaming affirmative action, phony phrase, reverse discrimination. When the fact is, if ever there were a chance, not a question of atoning for slavery, it isn't that at all. Ever there were a chance, well, let me explain it this way. Must, uh, but can I, I like to cite details. They're very telling. This involves welfare people, meaning black, of course, primarily in our mind, and street crime, meaning young black males, of course, in our mind. There was a Chicago hotel, the Sheraton. You know the new Sheraton Hotel yeah. along the lakefront yeah. a few years ago. As soon as it was nearing completion, word got out that 1,000 jobs would be available. Next day, 5.30 in the morning, and this is for the young who are listening, this hotel is along the lakefront, and in wintertime it is blizzardly, bitingly cold. 5.30 that morning, 5,000 people show up waiting for 1,000 jobs overwhelmingly young black male. 4,000 did not get the job. But if they show 5.30 in the morning for a job, that pays modestly. You know very well that plan for other jobs. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who are called welfare, and street crime means them. Where do those 4,000 go? They go to the familiar place they know, the street corner, and they're frustrated. Think if they had a job. Dough in the pocket, self-esteem, nine to five. Instead, they have nothing. All the energies there, so it's got to go antisocial. So we have these clowns who are now in power saying, more jails, free strikes, you're out, as though that does it. Mm -hmm. No one discusses jobs, and that's what 99% of this is all about. Yeah. How, how would you be different had you not gone through this period? How would I, I'm sorry. Had you not gone through depression and gone through this labor oh, movement? Oh, that's a good one. I don't have no idea what happened yeah. to me. What, what? I was hired by the WPA for those young people. Yeah. That's part of the government, New Deal legislation. I got a job on the Writers Project, and we did a lot of work there. That's mm -hmm. how I became something of a writer. I used to be a gangster in soap operas. You did? Chicago many soap operas. And I'd terrify Mop Perkins and Mary Marlin. 
Mary Marla was a heroine back in those soap opera yeah. days who suffered more than St. Teresa ever did. <laughs> Mondays through Fridays, courtesy of Oxido. <laughs> was this a mutual or...? or? And so I, it was the government... Here's the funny thing, I'm yeah. glad you raised that. The very ones who condemn big government today, we want to privatize it. They're the very ones whose, whose granddaddy's butts were saved by the New Deal. Ronnie Reagan's father got a job on the WPA in Dixon, Illinois. He was out of job it's that forgetfulness of history, or that erasure of it, that I sort of challenge in the book. What, what, what about people who say that period has ended and that those solutions no longer work? What do you say to that? Well, that's like saying there never was a past either. I'm not saying that government jobs are a solution. Mm -hmm. I'm saying at least it's part of it. And they say it doesn't work. How do they? They're calling on the very ones who cried out for government help back in the 30s. The very ones that, well, I remember I was interviewing, I did a book about the Depression called Hard Times. Mm, and I called on all sorts of, and this was a big shot, one of the big investment houses. He was advisor of, of Harry Truman, of Kennedy, of LBJ. And I said, explain that crash that happened. This is in 1929, the stock market collapsed. And that was the official beginning of the Depression. And he said, I can't explain it. It's as though I said, well, what, what did you think? We thought, we waited for an announcement. He, this says this wise man. We waited for an announcement. And I, I didn't have the heart to say, from whom? From God? From yourself? What sort of announcement? And so here they are today, wise man telling us, you privatize everything. Well, we know what happened to it back in the third. Of course we learned from the past. We don't learn from the past. You know the old saying, you're doomed to repeat it in the future. Well, Studs, I'm, I'm afraid we're about out of time for that. What, I'm what? just getting wound up. I know you are. I, <laughs> it's, it's not what do you know with Studs Turkle, though. You know, that could happen, though. And it would be a great show if it were. But, uh, Studs, what's, what's, next, what's next for you? Are you going on tour with this book? Or are you? Well, yeah, I'm just about to become the peddler, hitting the road. Yeah. And, and uh, what's next? I'm, I hit the big eight three. You know, I'm, I'll end with this. I, I was born near the Titanic sank. I call myself a Titanic baby. <laughs> and I'm still waiting for the iceberg. <laughs> Studs, it's a great, it's an inspirational book, truly, in, the, in what these people lived through and what they did. It's called Coming of Age, Studs Turkle, uh, and it's on the, the New Press, is the publisher. Thanks very much, Studs. Thank you very much.